Dr. Jason Woods here, and this is the Little Big Med Podcast, where we're talking little patients, but big medicine. I have gotten an absolute treat for you today. It's a discussion with one of the co-authors of a paper that was just published literally this past week, titled Hydrocortisone, Ascorbic Acid, and Thiamine Use Associated with Lower Mortality in Pediatric Septic Shock. And this was published in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. This paper addresses the use of combination HAT therapy, that is hydrocortisone, ascorbic acid, and thiamine to treat sepsis. I've anxiously been awaiting some pediatric-specific data since the discussions of this started after the original work of Paul Merrick and his colleagues. Now, neither my guest or I are saying that this is the end-all be-all of sepsis therapy, but I do think it is incredibly promising. I'm going to continue to study it, and you'll hear at the end of this that one of the next steps is possibly to study starting this in the ER instead of waiting for the ICU. So I'm going to get out of the way. I'm going to let my guest introduce himself. Take it away, Dr. Sanchez Pinto. So my name is Nelson Sanchez Pinto. I'm a uh, assistant professor of pediatrics and preventive medicine at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine in Chicago. I'm also a pediatric intensivist at Anne and Robert H. Lurie Children's Hospital, uh, which is the children's hospital affiliated with uh, Northwestern. When I got here, our use of metabolic resuscitation or HAT therapy that we'll be discussing today was just getting started and was a particular interest of mine uh, from the beginning, just seeing how it seemed to work on, on kids. And then also, along with my particular research interest in sepsis and multiple organ dysfunction in the ICU and the work that I do in parallel. For those that maybe don't know what metabolic resuscitation or HAT therapy is, can you give us an overview of of what it is and and what the terminology that you're using means? Absolutely. So HAT therapy uh, stands for the use of hydrocortisone, intravenous hydrocortisone, uh, ascorbic acid, which is the scientific name of vitamin C, and thiamine, so the so the acronym for hydrocortisone ascorbic acid and thiamine is, is the so-called HAT therapy or uh, the quote-unquote metabolic uh, cocktail. This came from research that was performed by Paul Merrick and, and colleagues in Virginia. Something I thought was interesting when I was reading through this was where the idea for, for this being potentially beneficial came from. So is there a physiologic reason why this combination of drugs might help in sepsis? Absolutely. So there's uh, sort of reasons for individually for these three components of this cocktail to have some beneficial effect in patients with sepsis and septic shock, and also the for the combination. So the first, probably the, the drug to discuss further is vitamin C, which is what many suspect is probably the the winner of that combination. Vitamin C is uh, known to be low in patients with septic shock. In fact, there's a correlation between lower levels and worse outcomes, so sort of dose-dependent effect on, on outcomes related to how low those vitamin C levels are. This is a, a problem because vitamin C is a key cofactor of a lot of the uh, stress responses in, in, in the body. So it's a, a vitamin C is an enzymatic cofactor for the production of catecholamines that you need obviously, uh, in your stress response, as well as cortisol and vasopressin. So you can imagine the effects of, of not being able to produce those three mediators and, and the effects that that could potentially have in, in patients with shock. Vitamin C is also a known antioxidant. It's a scavenger of reactive oxygen species and also been associated with decreased uh, production of nitric oxide uh, synthase, which is the main enzyme that produces uh, superoxide, which, uh, as the name implies, is a super reactive oxygen mediator. Vitamin C also downregulates pro-inflammatory pathways 
pathways, primarily through effects in the nuclear factor Kappa B, which is well known to be sort of the, the hub, the initiator of a lot of the canonical pro-inflammatory pathways. And then uh, vitamin C also has some, some effects on glucocorticoid receptor expression. So there's this idea that perhaps vitamin C also helps glucocorticoids do their work in, the, in stress response and perhaps some synergistic effect with hydrocortisone. Hydrocortisone also seems to work synergistically with vitamin C also by increasing the uh, transporters of vitamin C to allow for incorporation of vitamin C into the intracellular space. Man, a lot more effects than I thought there would be from vitamin C. What about hydrocortisone? Hydrocortisone has effects on upregulating adrenergic receptors as well as decreasing the reuptake of norepinephrine once it's being released, uh, which are the sort of the classic reasons why we think hydrocortisone helps in, 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 in shock states. And then last but not least, there seems to be perhaps through this nuclear factor Kappa B effects, uh, perhaps through other mechanisms that have uh, that yet need to be elucidated, there has been some animal um, experiments showing that in, in models of uh, endothelial injury, if you uh, give hydrocortisone or vitamin C alone, there's no significant improvement, whereas when you give them together, there's a synergistic effect that, that results in improved outcomes, in, in, at least in a mouse model of, again, endothelial injury. And last but not least, thiamine. Similar to vitamin C, it's known to be associated with low levels in septic shock. Thiamine is a, is a cofactor in many energy pathways, especially within the mitochondria. Paul Merrick and colleagues will talk about his study uh, soon and his development of the cocktail. They actually included thiamine also because of uh, an, an additional effect that uh, thiamine has uh, on vitamin C, which is it helps with the metabolism of vitamin C to avoid the formation of oxalate crystals, which is a potential problem of high-dose vitamin C. So that actually leads really well into my next question. So there's there's a number of theoretical or, or mouse model reasons why this combination of drugs might work. And there are some adult studies of patient level data on improvements. Can you give maybe an overview, especially of Merrick's work, of how this was developed and maybe what data is out there that this actually helps in a real world situation? Absolutely. So mainly two studies of HAT therapy so far and a few others of the different components. So for HAT therapy, the uh, sort of what initiated sort of the conversation around this treatment, this cocktail, was uh, Paul Merrick's and colleagues' publication in CHEST uh, back in 2017. She was published in December 2016 as an online publication, and I'll mention why that's important. Most people will consider it a small study. It was a before-after study covering about 14 months in a single center uh, where they had about 47 patients who received hat therapy after they developed the cocktail. This was based on this group's research, mostly in animal studies and um, uh, some experience with, with human data. They developed this cocktail, they implemented it. I think it was sort of the first time they used it, uh, the, the patient where they, where they first used it was sort of a very salvage situation where the patient was about to die. They gave the hat cocktail and there was sort of a miraculous uh, uh, recovery for that patient, which sort of le- led them to develop a more formal protocol and then institute it in, in prospectively. So they, they when they reach about 47 patients, they look back and compare those 47 patients who had re- received hat therapy with 47 historic controls. And they showed that uh, those who had received hat therapy had significantly lower mortality, about 8% mortality versus almost 40% mortality in those who had not received hat therapy. 8% versus almost 40%. So you can see why there was so much interest in this when it first came out. And Nelson's going to talk about some of the backlash about it. And some of that might have just been how the data was presented. But this is part of why I've been so excited to see whether this panned out. Because if true, this is a massive paradigm change in the treatment of sepsis. Subsequently, a lot of 
public commentary not necessarily good. A lot of skepticism around this smaller study with all the biases that might go into a before-after analysis. And some of the, sort of the skepticism also coming from how Paul Merrick decided to disseminate this knowledge, which was not only through this publication, but also through engagement in national conferences where he would pretty much go to the podium and state that he had found the cure for um, sepsis, which obviously ruffled a lot of feathers. So this led to many months of public commentary, editorials, discussions around whether this was truly uh, a significant improvement in uh, clinical research within the septic sepsis and septic shock space, or it was all sort of a big bluff. But a year later, a group uh, out of South Korea published a, a propensity score analysis of patients with severe pneumonia, so exclusively uh, severe pneumonia patients, so not just any sepsis. And they compared HAT therapy versus historic controls, and again, a significant improvement in mortality. So those are, are the two main adult uh, HAT therapy-centric studies so far. There's several HAT therapy uh, randomized, multi-center randomized controlled trials that are currently ongoing, and we'll see what those definite studies show. Obviously, that, that, that will be sort of the gold standard. Nelson mentions a number of different studies, and he's about to bring up a couple more. And rather than breaking in every time he brings up a new one, I'm going to list all of these in the show notes with links. I think most people at this point in the podcast are really desperate to hear the results of what the study showed. But I think this setup is really important because it explains why they chose to do what they did in this study. And that I find really interesting. That's actually a wonderful overview of where the current data stands. We're not quite to asking about the results of your study. I'd love to hear first how your center started using HAT therapy, what the experience with it was, and and maybe where in your life you started using this therapy on your patients. So again, uh, Paul Merrick published his paper in December 2016 was the e-publication, the online publication of the trial, of the, sorry, of the study. Eventually the paper came out in June, but between December and May of two, 2017, one of my colleagues here at uh, Lurie Children's Hospital, Eric Wall, in discussing with colleagues in the, in the group, decided that it made sense to formalize a HAT therapy protocol for patients with septic shock that we admitted in our unit. Uh, and we definitely were one of the frequent users of hydrocortisone in, in this population. Along with that, we also had a history of using quote-unquote metabolic support adjuvant therapies. It was not unusual for us to use thiamine in some patients, uh, particularly those with higher lactate levels. Also, we frequently using vivocarnitine. So really, the only big addition, formalization of a protocol was the addition of high-dose vitamin C. And by May of 2017, the protocol was, was in place and we used it on our first patient. Well, let's get into it then. Tell me about the study, how it was designed, and then what the results were. Yeah, so we performed this a single center retrospective parentheses score matched analysis of patients who received HAT therapy compared to those who did not. We just published this in the American Journal for Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, which is one of the highest impact journals in our field as a research letter. So this was a single center retrospective propensity score match study of patients with septic shock, comparing those who received um, HAT therapy versus those who received only hydrocortisone or received neither of those two adjuvant therapies. This is uh, over a period of about five years, so 2014 through 2019. So this includes both historic controls between 2014 and 2017 of those patients who did not, who only had either hydrocortisone or, or no treatment at that point, and then more contemporaneous controls between 2017 and 2019 of those admitted and treated either with or without HAT therapy during the HAT therapy protocol era. How many patients did you end up having as part of this retrospective group? And then how did you divide them and, and sort of what statistical analysis did you do? We had 500 
157 patients with septic shock. We define septic shock as patients who were in the ICU with a suspected or confirmed infection and who also required uh, vasoactive medication. That criteria had to be met within 24 hours of admission to the ICU. We didn't want to include patients who were far along in their in their disease course. So we had those 557 patients. Of those, 333 patients had not received any adjuvant therapy. About 181 had received only hydrocortisone and then 43 patients received HAP therapy. The approach that we took it was uh, a propensity score match analysis. So propensity score match analysis is a way of dealing with selection bias. So you can imagine that when using an adjuvant therapy, be it just hydrocortisone or HAP therapy, that you are more likely to use that treatment in patients who are sicker with the idea that the sicker they are, the probably the more benefit that they could uh, achieve from the medication, trying to avoid side effects from those drugs in patients who are less sick. I guess let's move right into the meat of the conversation. What did the study show? What were the results? So when we compared the patients with who received HAP therapy to those those who did not receive any adjuvant therapy, the mortality for those patients who had had therapy was 9% at 30 days compared to a mortality of 28% at 30 days for those who did not receive adjuvant therapies. When we compared the had therapy patients with those who had received only hydrocortisone, the mortality, again, of the had therapy patients is the same. It was the same group, 9%, and the mortality of those who received hydrocortisone only was 30%. But both of those differences across the untreated group and the um, those with hydrocortisone only was statistically significant. And I- I just want to stop and highlight that that is a that's a massive absolute reduction like the, those are not relative reductions that's nine versus 28 percent mortality and that's that's huge it, it appears to be quite significant that the interesting piece is that the differences are quite similar to the uh, mortality benefit that that was associated with the had therapy in the Merrick trial similar to the South Korean trial and even similar to the at least the short-term mortality difference in the in the Fowler citrus alley trial so we've seen this consistent three, four-fold decrease in mortality associated with the use of HAT therapy or high-dose vitamin C in the different studies. And you also looked at slightly longer-term mortality. So you looked at 90-day mortality as well as some other secondary endpoints. Can you talk about those? And I'm specifically looking at vasoactive-free days or hospital-free days. Yeah, absolutely. So we looked at 90-day mortality, thinking that perhaps there's some kids with residual morbidity associated with their septic shock that we might see this mortality play out later on. And again, there was a significant mortality difference there, 14% mortality versus 37% mortality in those who did not. We also looked at, as you said, uh, vasoactive free days and hospital free days. We did not find any difference between the groups there. Now, I think this is a very interesting finding, and I think this is related to in part to some of the effects that we saw in in our outcomes. The first is that it seems that patients who survive the early phase of their septic shock seem to do fine afterwards, or not fine. It's quote unquote they they will they are likely to die if they much less likely to die if they survive this early phase, this first two three days of of um, septic shock. And then they're just very sick, meaning that they, they stay in the hospital for a long time. So I think what we were seeing here with the, with the lack of difference in vasoactive free days is that once those patients survived those three or four days, then they were pretty much vasoactive free for the rest of their about 30 days. And on the flip side, for those in hospital free days, most of those patients, even if they, they died early on or they survived, they stayed in the hospital, meaning those who, who died early, obviously they had no hospital free days because they were not alive. And those who survived had this more multiple organ dysfunction that led to a prolonged hospital stay. So something I wanted to have you discuss a little bit was you mentioned that the Fowler study, that 
vitamin C was protocolized to be given for four days of therapy. Was there similar protocols for how long the hat therapy was being given in your department? And then my follow-up question to that is, do you have any data on the differences in how long it took to get therapy started? And I guess I'm asking that from the standpoint of hydrocortisone has existed as a adjunctive therapy for pediatric septic shock for a little bit longer. And my, my assumption would be that people are more willing to start it earlier, given that it's not quite as new of a, of a combined therapy. Yeah, absolutely. So um, our protocol also established a four-day therapy for vitamin C as well as thiamine and did not cap the or recommend any difference in the length of hydrocortisone. However, this is just was the sort of the guidelines, the recommendations of the protocol. We did not look and see how often vitamin C was continued for longer periods of time or the hydrocortisone, et cetera. But to answer your second question, this is an important question because obviously we might be dealing also with another type of survival bias, which is that perhaps we were only using hat therapy and those kids were still alive by the time we thought about giving them hat therapy. However, we looked at, at this question and even though we didn't publish this in the paper, the median time to the first dose of vitamin C was 11.7 hours from admission to the PICU, uh, so about 12 hours from admission to the PICU. And the, uh, the median time to mortality in the uh, untreated groups was 42 hours for the untreated patients and about 58 hours in the hydrocortisone only group patients. So clearly significantly sooner than the average time to, the, to mortality with enough time for that to work if we had used it in those patients. So I don't think there was a significant survival bias in, in this case. I ask this question a lot and I, I think maybe it's sometimes unfair, but it really does help the listeners. Can you distill down the point or the result of the study into one or two sentences? What's the big takeaway from your work? So I think the big takeaway is, uh, you know, HAT therapy appears to be safe and effective in the treatment of patients with septic shock. I believe the main effect is in improved survival, that early early mortality, early death from refractory shock. Once these kids overcome that that first hurdle of being alive in the, after the first two, three days, these are still sick patients who are going to be sick for a long time. But HAT therapy allows us to at least get these kids alive after those two or three days and then focus on, on their long-term recovery and reduction of their long-term morbidity. I think that is a perfect way to wrap this up. I really appreciate you being here with us and giving us your time, Nelson. You're going to definitely have to come back with any additional studies. Happy to do so. If you couldn't tell from the introduction and the way that I fawned over Dr. Sanchez Pinto during this interview, I'm very excited about this topic. First off, sepsis is one of the things that I'm most interested in, and it was the condition that convinced me to become a pediatric emergency medicine physician in the first place. So I, I always hang on any new data that comes out of this. But two, it has the possibility to represent another step forward in the treatment of septic shock. And we focus in this discussion a lot on patients who have complex comorbid conditions, but that's where the mortality is the highest right now. So it makes sense to me that that's where the biggest benefit's going to be rather than in the previously healthy kids. Now, part of the discussion that I had to cut because Dr. Sanchez Pinto and I talked for more than an hour about this paper. Part of the discussion that I had to cut was, could we start this therapy earlier? And is there a study in here that could look at starting it as soon as they get into the ICU, starting this therapy in the emergency room? I don't know if there are any studies out there planned. Picarn, I'm looking at you because I think this is ripe for a multi-center study. So stay tuned. If I hear about anything, there'll definitely be an episode about this on Little Big Med. Thanks for listening. If you want to keep the conversation going, you can find the rest of our episodes at www.littlebigmed.com. You can email me at littlepatientsbigmedicine at gmail.com or find me on Twitter at jwoodsmd.com.